Now, none of you in here have witnessed the resurrection with your physical eyes. No one in here has seen Jesus in that way. And this way, we might say none of you have seen Jesus. I know we talk about that sometimes, but practically speaking, we haven't seen Jesus. But in our text this morning, Jesus will tell Thomas, who has just seen Jesus with these physical eyes, have you believed because you have seen me? And he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So uh, when, Jesus, when Jesus is talking about here, when he talks about this blessing, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed, what Jesus is blessing is the imaginative vision that is able to hear God's word by faith. Right? Hearing comes by, uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So in other words, there's an element of faith that comes with approaching the resurrection. We're called to look at it in this sense. Okay? We're called to look at the fact of the resurrection. We'll see that's the way that Paul talks about the resurrection. He says it's a fact. So we're supposed to look at the fact of the resurrection and then apply that to our lives. Okay? So my task this morning will be to present to you the facts of the resurrection as we look at this text and then kind of step, step back and pair with that the meaning of the facts. What does resurrection mean? So similar to how we looked at uh, the, the fact of the burial of Jesus last week and then moved to its symbolic significance and what that meant for us, we're going to do the same this week with the resurrection. Okay? We might say, what is resurrection and what does it mean for us? Okay? So we're going to look at John chapter 20 to get a better glimpse, a glimpse of what the resurrection is and what it means for us. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning, church. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken our, the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and they saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there, or sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to him, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. 
On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into the side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it at my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that faith comes by hearing. And Lord, we pray that as we hear your word today, we ask that you'd give us the ears to be able to hear rightly. We pray that you'd give us a spiritual vision, a sanctified vision, that we might be able to come to the facts of the resurrection and be able to see a deeper significance, what resurrection means for us, how we are supposed to look at the world in light of the resurrection. So teach us today as we sit at your feet, as we listen to your word, shape us, mold us closer to the image of your perfect son, Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. So in order to stay in keeping with John's entire gospel, I need to reiterate to you why he's even writing this. He tells us his purpose in verse 31 that we've kind of alluded to back and forth as we've been in John. He keeps telling us his purpose. And he wants us to believe the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is his whole purpose in writing his gospel to us, that we might believe that he is the son of God. And when we believe, says we will have life in his name. So he tells us after the pinnacle moment of his gospel, which is the resurrection, that's where everything is pointing to. He says that uh, we might have, have a belief in him and that through believing that Jesus is the son of God, we will have life. Okay. Now, it's been a while, but in one of my earlier sermons, if you were here, um, I brought up this phrase of the Son of God, and we talked about that, didn't we? About there are only being two individuals in all of Scripture that are referred to as Son of God. Jesus actually isn't the only one. There's one other person in Scripture that is individually referred to as Son of God. Yes, corporately, the people of God have sometimes been called Sons of God, but only one other person has ever been called Son of God. Do you remember who that other person was? There's Jesus and Adam. Adam is the Son of God, is what um, I think it's Matthew's gospel tells us in the genealogy. He refers to Adam as the Son of God. So we might say that Adam is the first Son of God, 
And Jesus is the second, or we might say the last, Son of God. Now, place that thought in your back pocket. Put it right here. That idea of the, the Son of God, thinking about Adam and that, that kind of creational mindset. Now, does the setting of John's resurrection, John's account of the resurrection, that is, in chapter 20, seem familiar to you at all? That is the setting. Think about what is going on. It's kind of the, we might say, the furniture of the story. What is going on there? What might you conclude if you were to compile all of the following facts that I'm about to give you of John's resurrection narrative, what would you believe this is speaking about Jesus, who John says is the Son of God? Okay, last week, but chapter 19, verse 21, John points out that Jesus was buried in a garden. In a new tomb where nobody's ever been before. So just imagine a garden where no one has ever been before. Verse 1 of our text today takes place in the dark. It says the resurrection takes place in the dark. Okay, Think of darkness in a place where no one's ever been before. On the first day of the week. Like day 1. Verse 11. Then Mary returns the second time and she enters the tomb to find angels there. We might say cherubim there who are standing at the head and the feet of where Jesus was placed. And many respectable commentators will say this is probably like a visual representation of the Ark of the Covenant, right? Because the Ark of the Covenant had those two cherubim. But for my purposes today, I'd like to say, well, yes, that, that would have kind of looked like an Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the temple and the temple was it had a template of someplace else. What was the template for the temple? It was the Garden of Eden, the, the heavenly garden, the place where God and man were together, right? That's what the temple was. So you have this uh, place where angels are at in the dark on the first day of the week in a garden. And then verse 15, John, for some reason, wants you to see Mary supposes that Jesus is a gardener. He thinks Jesus is a gardener. We might say one who works the garden and keeps it. Okay? Are you starting to get the vision? Okay. But Mary doesn't realize who she's talking to until this gardener names her. Simply says woman at first. Okay, And woman is the generic name given to females at the beginning because woman was taken from man's side, from Adam's side, woman. Right? She came from man. But this gardener, he names her Right? in verse 16. The gardener proverbially, or Jesus, proverbially names her. So by calling her Mary, only then does she realize who Jesus is and what he has done, namely raised from the dead. She gets a full picture when she's named, kind of like someone else was named in the garden. You start to see the picture. So is it coincidence that the resurrection begins the same way that the first creation did? You see the themes and the overlap on the first day. So here we have the resurrection beginning in the dark on the first day of the week in a garden. There just so happens to be angels there, just like the Garden of Eden. And then Jesus is mistaken to be the gardener, the same vocation as Adam, who was charged with working the garden and keeping it. Jesus names Mary just as Adam was charged with naming everything in the garden, including his wife, Eve. And rather than revealing himself first to the male apostles, like we might think that he would do, because that's Jesus' posse, right? That's who he hangs out with all the time. Rather than doing that, we have this scene so where, where you have one man, one woman, in a garden. Right? You're starting to get a, a picture here, aren't you? Have some kind of idea that the scripture is trying to tell us. Something maybe deeper than what's on the surface. So your literature professor in college would certainly come to the conclusion that John is telling you that the resurrection of Jesus is bringing about a new creation. He'd see all those themes and say, wow, look at that. He would tell you that Jesus is obviously the second Adam. But more importantly, what does the Bible say? 
Does the Bible say this? Does the, does the apostolic witness pointing to these same things? When we think of the resurrection from a biblical perspective, are we actually thinking this same thing? Now, 1 Corinthians 15, that's the famous chapter. Everyone turns to 1 Corinthians 15 at all the funerals because they want to look at the resurrection. There's a dead person in front of them. What do they think of? Well, we need to think of resurrection, right? We need to think of life. So they turn to 1 Corinthians 15. That's the resurrection chapter. That's actually where we've been, too, in the last weeks. That's where Paul says that that scripture about the things of first importance, if you were here last week, where he says, this is the gospel I handed you, these things of first importance, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the resurrection, he says, but in fact, Christ has raised from the dead. Now, I love how Paul unapologetically calls the resurrection a fact. This is in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, if anyone's trying to find it in their Bible. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, so it seems like there's going to be more fruits, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death. Who do you think he's talking about? For by, by a man came death. By a man has also come resurrection from the dead. Right? He's making a reference to Adam and to Jesus. For as in Adam, oh, there it is, all died. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. So when Paul thinks of resurrection, he's thinking of this new creation theme. If we keep reading down in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42 through 45, it says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown is in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. What's sown in natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And here it is. Thus it is written, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving, or sorry, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So you have Adam and Jesus, first man, the second man, okay? Now notice that he says, thus it is written. If you're looking in your Bibles, that's a quotation. Right? He's quoting from something in the Old Testament, and what he's quoting from is actually Genesis 2, 7. Which, again, is the creation account where it says, The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. That's the quotation right there. The man became a living creature. And what is it that we find Jesus doing in verse 22 in our text today? What's he doing? He breathes on his disciples. That's a weird thing to do. That's something that you don't see people doing very often. So it would seem to me that there might be some kind of connection. I mean, that's not an ordinary thing for you to be hanging out with someone and just, right? <laughs> that, that doesn't happen very often. There's, there's obviously some kind of connection being made there where Jesus is breathing on them the breath of life and then sending them out. Right? He says, I'm sending you out to do something. Okay, And 1 Corinthians 15 isn't the only place that Paul connects the resurrection uh, account to the creation account and the Edenic themes. In Romans 5, he does the same thing. Romans 5, 12 through 21, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who do you think that one man is? Adam. And death reigned through sin, so, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So you're in there with Adam. It's not just him. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
Let me say that again. Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. By the way, this is the grounds on which I use this method of interpretation. This is biblical to think of Adam as a type of Christ. When we think about the resurrection, it, it, it almost seems like a stretch when you start pulling out these themes like this and thinking kind of like a, a college professor. But this is actually the way that Paul does this. He thinks as Adam and Christ being connected through the resurrection to the new creation. Okay, So we should see types in scripture all leading to Christ. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing in uh, Romans, but uh, it goes on and on talking about this one man, Adam, and this one man, Jesus. Jesus. The, the free gift of Jesus is different than the gift that Adam gave us, which wasn't much of a gift, right? We fell in Adam. So Adam gives us this picture of everything kind of falling apart, sin getting more and more and more and bounding up more and more. But the difference is Jesus comes and he does something different, right? He's kind of doing the opposite work, but still doing work. Right? Still laboring and doing something. Okay, So it's not just our literature professors that read the resurrection like this. This is how the apostles interpret the facts of the resurrection. They see the resurrection as a new creation event. When they start to talk about the resurrection, this is the way that they talk about it. They see Jesus as the new Adam, the Son of God. You can pull that out of your back pocket now. John wants you to see that. Son of God has a significance there. When, when you're seeing Jesus, you're not just seeing Jesus uh, as a, uh, a figure that kind of stands abstractly. You're seeing Jesus as the Son of God that you might have life in his name. Okay, So he's reversing the work of the first Son of God, Adam. Adam's disobedience, his unrighteousness, it's made a lot of mess. So what we should think about this is it's, when you think rightly, we should not see the resurrection as a replay of creation. We might be tempted to do that. It's not a replay of creation. It's a reversal of the mess. Okay, So it's not just the same thing happening again. It's actually fixing the brokenness of it, the, the problem of it. Because the first creation, it was good. right? It wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing. And the, the problem was when sin came in there. So one takeaway that we can see from this text in Romans is uh, not only has the world become a worse place because of the fall of Adam, but your sin has actually made it worse. Those things that you confessed a minute ago, that's made the world a worse place. When you walk like your father, Adam, you did damage to the world. That's that's what sin does. But the good news of the resurrection is, is there's a reversal of that. Right? So that, that's kind of the, the confession of sin. The assurance of pardon is Jesus. Look what Jesus, the new Adam, has done, where we, what, we, what, what we couldn't do. He did the work that we could not do. This is why we see Paul will tell us to put off the old man... That's, some translations say old self. That's a bad translation. It says put off the old man. That's what the King James says. That's, that's right. Put off the old man. That's Adam. Put on the new man. That's Christ. That's Ephesians 4.22 if anyone's wondering. And we are new creations in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 will say. So just as the world is made worse because of your sin, starting with Adam, the world is recreated, renewed, and made a better place because of your righteous acts, starting with Christ, who is the new Adam, who is the Son of God, Okay, the one who brings new creation through his resurrection. That's what the picture you should be getting by now of resurrection. It brings new creation. So his resurrection becomes the turning point in history when new creation starts to kind of blossom out and be a turn for good in the world. Now, contrast uh, these two pictures here, of the, the old and the new garden a bit, right? Because there's differences. There's a lot of similarities, but there's differences too. Think about this. 
In the first garden, Eve proceeds without the leadership of her head. She goes out and does it on her own. She does not look for him to guidance about the forbidden fruit. When she's tempted, she just goes out and does it on her own. She simply eats. She's in rebellion to her God-given head. Adam was there to work the garden to keep it. He was given charge of it. And Eve kind of goes off and does her own thing. And that is what brought about the fall of man. Seems like a small act, but that's what started it all. But Mary, in the resurrection garden, three times desperately seeks her master. Think about that. Where have they put him? She's weeping. She's looking for her leader. It's as if she's lost without him, and she's not going to leave the garden until she finds him. She's got to find her director, her leader, her master. So Mary, a new kind of Eve, has the rebellion reordered in her. She's going back to the one she should be going to. She isn't running away from the rule over her. She's running to it for right order, for right leadership. Right? That's what she's looking for. So consider also in the Garden of Eden, God is in search of man for judgment after sin. Right? Adam and Eve sin. Where are you? That's what, Adam, that's what God says to Adam. Where are you? But in the resurrection garden, man is in search of God for mercy after sin. Right? It's almost like, God, where are you? Mary's looking for Jesus, her God, her, her Savior. Mary doesn't hide. She seeks. Right? Adam and Eve, they're hiding in the garden when God is looking for them. But Mary is out there looking for her master. So while the Adamic curse is reversed, we need to also realize it's not completely removed. Right? We live in a sinful world. That's why we just confess sins. Right? And we're part of that. Right? So it's still there. Things are turning in the opposite direction post-resurrection. Starting very small, though. It begins with something as small as a woman pursuing her teacher, just as it started with something as small as a woman not pursuing her God-given leader, her teacher, you might say. In other words, there's still much work to do. You still have a lot of work to do. That's why Jesus sends his disciples out. He breathes on them and gives them the power that they need to go work these gardens and keep them. And perhaps this is why Mary is told not to cling to Jesus. Right? She, she comes and wraps her arms around Jesus, and he says, no, 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 don't do that now. It's almost like he's saying, we can't hang out here. No, we still have a world to recreate. We have a ton of work to do. We're not just hanging out here. You've got to go. Go tell the disciples, and I'm going to go tell them too. I'm going to appear to them and tell them we have work to do. I'm going to send them out. Okay? What are they going to do? They're going to subdue the earth. They're going to be fruitful and multiply they're going, to, they're going to go to the nations, and they're going to disciple them, and they're going to baptize them, teaching them all that Christ has commanded them. They're going to work the gardens that God has given to them. Which brings us to you, brings us to me, to all of us, the church. Okay, When you think of resurrection, are all the implications attached to your future? I'm trying to get you to think a little bit differently about the resurrection, not abandon your past thinking, but as we're looking at this, we haven't talked anything about dying and resurrecting yet, have we? We've been talking about new creation themes. So let me ask it another way. Does resurrection have any present effect on your life now, or does the resurrection only mean that you get to go to heaven after you die? Think about that. Because most of the time, we only talk about resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 when there's a dead body right here. Right? Resurrection doesn't come to our day-to-day -day lives as often as it maybe should. So this is important because for Paul, when he thinks of the resurrection, he has big plans now. Like he's excited about the new creation that Jesus has brought, about him putting all the enemies under his feet. And the last enemy 
like way down the road, that's going to be death. Yes, we're looking forward to that. But there's a reality now to where he's subduing and all, all, all kings are bowing knees to Jesus. Paul is excited about this. All things being subjected to the kingship of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 says this. Paul, Paul's exhorting the people as it, as it pertains to the resurrection. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So he's talking about the present here. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. In other words, something's clicked, something's changed. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Okay? So he's saying you need to think differently now. Because you're in Christ, you need to think through the lens of new creation. You are a new creation. He says even before Christ resurrected from the dead, we thought about him in a little bit different way. But once he rose from the dead, that changed everything. We regarded him according to the flesh, but once he raised from the dead, new creation. That's the theme that we look at the world through now. So Paul says, because of the resurrection, we no longer see the world from the old perspective, from an edemic perspective, we might say. We are new creations, and the old has passed away, the new has come. He'll say elsewhere in Philippians 3, he, he, this is his prayer, that I may know him, that's Christ, and the power of his resurrection. That's what Paul wants. He wants right now to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Do you know Christ and the power of his resurrection now? Or are you just hoping one day after you die you'll know that? Because that's what Paul wants today. And Jesus himself will say in John 5, we've already looked at this uh, back when we talked about the Son of God, John 5, 25 through 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When's that? That's now, right? Now means now. It's the present, okay? The hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear him will live. Okay? Sounds like resurrection, right? For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, and that's all he says, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So, did you catch that? An hour is coming and is now here, and then he says, an hour is coming. So, the Bible gives us not just future implications, but present implications to the resurrection for those who, like Mary, hear the voice of the Son of God. He says, the dead will hear. That's now. So, what I want you to see today is connect this. Uh, this idea of resurrection, not just to your future, but to your present. I want resurrection to be something that you know the power of it today. Tomorrow as you're going through your work week, right? You need it then. You need a resurrection mentality. So I'd like to rip off Eugene Peterson, who also ripped off Wendell Berry in one of his poems, and present to you the idea of practicing resurrection, there's a Wendell Berry poem where he ends his poem by talking about practicing the resurrection. And that's where Eugene Peterson kind of rips it off. He wrote a book called Living the Resurrection. Great book, by the way. So Eugene Peterson writes, The resurrection of Jesus creates and then makes available the reality in which we are formed as new, create, new creatures in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. The resurrection of Jesus creates and then makes available the reality in which we are formed as new creatures in Christ by the Holy Spirit. So because the resurrection happened, it's a fact, 
we now have new gospel glasses, a new reality is the way that Eugene Peterson speaks about it. We we have new reality, new gospel glasses to place on ourselves to see the world differently with not just a hope for the future, but a progressive hope in the present. Now you're able to see, today I have hope. I can walk in the power of the resurrection today. And these aren't just rose-colored glasses that make us naive to the real pain and suffering of the world. Because that's how some people start to think when you talk like this. Well, you don't understand the context, though. You don't know what this person's going through. You don't get what they are going through right now. They have deep, deep sin rooted in their family. They'll say things like that. So, so I'm saying this realizing that, uh, but these rose-colored glasses, this resurrection mentality, this resurrection reality does not disregard the context of sin. It doesn't say, oh, never mind that. It reframes it, though. It says, actually, there's an answer to that, and the answer is resurrection. Okay? Resurrection speaks to that sin. It's able to reframe it and able to give you a way forward. When you realize the fact of the resurrection is in the same world that you live in, not just some fairy tale. right? That's not what the Bible is. That's a fact of the resurrection. When you realize it's in the same world you live in, it recontextualizes your situation. You could say, well, you don't understand my context. And I say, maybe you don't understand the context of the world we live in. right? We live in the same world where Jesus rose from the dead. That's not... It's a myth that we believe as Christians. It's, it happened here. A couple thousand years ago, yes, but it happened and it changes things. It frames your way of thinking about the grimness of, uh, of a situation. It reframes it to think, oh, there's actually hope here. We can speak to this issue. It enchants the disenchanted world we live in to see it from an angle of wonder, of astonishment, instead of flattened and static because of sin. Because that's what we're tempted to do, isn't it? We're tempted to think uh, that things are always going to be that they, the way they have always been. Right? Things have always been this way. And you know what? They're always going to be this way. My, my grandpa was like this. My dad was like this. I'm like this. And guess what? My son, he's probably going to be like, no. No, that, that isn't the reality that you have to live in. Yes, it might be that if you live in an idemic kind of way. If you regard people according to the flesh. If you're not walking in the power of the resurrection, but Paul says that's not the way that we're supposed to think. We're supposed to realize we are new creations in Christ Jesus. Think about it in a different way. Put your gospel glasses on. You're blurry right now. You're not seeing things rightly the way that God calls us to. So broken families do not have to stay dead and buried in sin. They can be redeemed in a context of resurrection. There's there's hope for families. Dysfunctional patterns of thinking do not have to stay dead and buried in chaos. They can be renewed in a context of resurrection. Okay, A dead-end job. You feel like you're going nowhere. Things are always going to be this way. Leading to a vocational burnout. You're feeling like, oh, this is it. I mean, life is just very dull, flat. No. It doesn't have to be that way. You can have your, your life reframed by actually just putting on your glasses, thinking about it in a new kind of way, not leading to depression and anxiety. But you can believe in the resurrection and find life, is what Paul says. You can have life. John says, if you believe in Jesus, the son of man, you will have life in his name. Jesus will say himself, I came to give you life. Boring life? No, life abundant, Right? This is a different kind of life, and it's not just future, it's present. So practicing resurrection means living, because that's what John says apparently happens when we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So it means living appropriately and responsibly in the same world that Christ has risen in. That's the way that we live in this world. 
The same world that Jesus rose from the dead in, it means we live appropriately and responsibly, realizing the whole context, the big picture. Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we're Christians, by the way. Like you, you don't believe that, and you pretty much lose the whole thing. Paul says, you of all people are most to be pitied if you drop that point. Lose the resurrection, and you're miserable. You, you can't live life. It's, it's impossible. So it means, uh, practicing the resurrection, it means that we keep the resurrection element in the gospel of first importance in our lives. Remember that thing that we keep going back to? I delivered to you a gospel of things of first importance, death, burial, resurrection. Live the gospel out now. We do this, we think that we do this automatically. I'm a Christian. Well, I think that way. That's not what Paul says. He says, you have to put on the new man. That's something you got to actively do. you got to practice this. We, we begin to take on edemic views of the world when we look around. We think, oh, man, things are just awful. You, you're, you're, you feel like you're going nowhere and uh, the kind where we're starting to be controlled by our environment, right? You look around at the environment and you say, this is how I'm going to be because that's how it is out there. So you can get stuck in death and burial mode but forget there's resurrection power, Okay. But when we adopt a resurrection mentality, we guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus from the dominion of sin. Sin is reigning in many ways right now. It's reigning in other people's bodies. Hopefully not Christians, but it's reigning in a way. And the resurrection calls Christians to march out and say, no, we're actually calling to take dominion over that. We don't want that anymore. So, so when you resurrect your, your thinking and you have that resurrection mentality, you're at war with the dominion of sin in the world. So life is baptized. It's, it's reimagined to think about the world in a new way to where we take dominion in a world that Jesus has really resurrected it. Calling people to say, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. Is this really how we have to look at the situation? Is this really the way that we're going to go about this? And, and the power of the resurrection, we can do it this way. In an otherwise dead-end world, we, call, or we are called to bring resurrection life to it. That's what Christians are called to do. Live that kind of way. So as we close this morning on this huge topic of the resurrection, you'll notice I didn't get down to the nitty-gritty of chapter 20 because there's just so many directions you could go. I just wanted to kind of look generally at the resurrection and give us a, a big thousand-foot picture. As we close, I want us to think rightly about it. And by that, I mean we should not just think of the resurrection as a thing but everything. Like it is it is everything. It is Christianity. Resurrection isn't a doctrine to kind of slap onto your theology. Like you have this book of theology and you're like, oh yeah, I believe a little bit about this. After I die, I resurrect, right? No. Resurrection needs to be theology itself. It needs to be the study of God. You look at God through the lens of resurrection. You look at your world through the lens of resurrection. It's everything. It's the gospel glasses. Eugene Peterson says it this way. Resurrection is no more an add-on to human life than creation is an add-on to that edemic lump of clay. It is life itself. The God breathed, Jesus breathed, beginning of who we are and who we become by the Holy Spirit. It is holy breathing. We breathe in resurrection. We live by resurrection. We live by faith in the Son of God. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. And when we believe in that way... You have life. You have real life. So church, just as Eve, the, the bride of Adam in the first garden, was brought forth from his side. Think about this. Uh, the early church spoke of it this way. You too, as the church, have been birthed from Christ's side as the water and the blood brought you forth in baptism. That's the, many times what people thought of when they thought of the, the water and the blood flowing from Christ's side. They said, that's baptism. That's baptism. We are baptized and we come flowing from the side of Christ. That's what constitutes who we are. 
We are created from his side. And what we must realize is once we're here, we're baptized, we're in the kingdom, we're in this new garden. We need to realize that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God has breathed on us the Holy Spirit to make us what? Helpers fit for him. We're we're like the new Eve. We we are the bride of Christ. We are the the, the new woman, we might say, in the garden. We, We are the Marys. We are the ones who've been sent out. So you must not just believe in the resurrection as this fact, as this point, but you gotta practice resurrection. We gotta live out resurrection by working the garden and keeping it. That is the garden of the kingdom, the church. That's what we've been called to. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we have a lot of work to do. As we look at the the garden, we might say, uh, of the church, there's many weeds, there's many thorns that have grown up. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to stay faithful, to keep up weeding and uprooting and cleaning out the gardens that you've entrusted to us. Lord, help us to be faithful to work our gardens and keep them. Help us to take dominion over them. Help us to subdue the earth and take dominion. Lord, I pray that we'd be fruitful and multiplying, not just with physical children, thinking of flesh and blood, but Lord, I pray that we would make disciples. I pray that we would bring people into your kingdom, that they too might be baptized, that they might have a new vision given to them, that they might believe on Jesus, the Son of God, who has resurrected from the dead, and that they might have life in your name. Lord, let us be able to walk in the power of the resurrection with the gospel on our lips at all times, seeing clearly, not with physical sight, but with the spiritual vision that you give us by faith. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let us continue to worship this morning. Uh,